When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Adam Phillips is both a psychotherapist and one of our most gifted essayists, able to distill his thoughts about what make us human into books that are both profound and poetic. He is, as anyone who has read him or heard him speak would agree, a very wise man. He joined us last Saturday at our Festival of Psychology and Ideas, How to Change Your Life, to tell Hannah McInnes about On Giving Up, his new book about what we must abandon in order to feel more alive. Perhaps we could start more generally and then of course we'll go into the various essays, but what assumption about giving up are you challenging or turning on its head? Well, I think two things. One is how, I mean, the obvious one, which is that obviously we're invited a lot to give things up for our well-being or for the health, for the planet, etc. So it's as though giving things up is kind of integral to one of the ways we think about our lives. And so it would seem to me worth considering what we're hoping giving up will do for us. In other words, it's as though if I give up smoking, it'll get me the life I want or more of the life I want. Well, it may well do, but of course, Giving things up is always a risk. You can't guarantee what's going to happen. So it's not an obvious deal. There's that, and that's the straightforward bit of it. The other bit of it is to do with suicide and to do with the very real tragedy of what happens when somebody gets to the point where they feel their lives are unbearable and unlivable. Now, I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is why we should assume that lives are always worth living. It's a version, in a way, of the assisted dying question. But I think it's, it, it seems to me it's quite dangerous for us to believe that we have to keep people alive and we must live at all costs, when for some people, or sometimes in their lives, their lives may actually be unbearable. And so to go on living them is like torture. So one of the things the book says, which is a simple, kind of obvious point, which is that when we give up things, we believe we can change. When we give up, we believe we can't change. And that becomes the critical point, I think. And why do you want to question, you say exactly, it's about the assumption or the presumption that life is by definition always worth living. So why is it important to question that? Because it's what, I suppose, gets most of us up each day. No, I realize that, but I think that in a way, the question is, the risk is, that it becomes a tyrannically torturing idea. Because it's as though we're saying to everybody, you have to stay alive. Well, things might have happened to me, the whole spectrum from you know, catastrophes to illnesses to whatever, that actually makes living my life unbearable. And it would seem to me people should have the option and be able to think that, and if need be, to do it. But that at least it must be thinkable. Otherwise, it could feel as though we're imprisoned in life 
and the onus is on us to put up with whatever happens. And sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes it may not be. When I hear you say that, it makes me think that one of the things that unifies all the essays is pushing back on any sort of prescriptive idea or imprisonment. Uh, curiosity in one of the essays you talk about is so important. Is that something that unifies them all? I think it probably is that an unwillingness to accept tyrannical accounts of human nature, if you see what I mean, um, and that in a sense, and it would seem to me in a way education you could think is about this, it's about the developing of curiosity and people having the courage of their curiosity, meaning that people pursue the things that they love and like and are really interested in, as opposed to simply submitting or complying. I mean, clearly, lots of the things we've all learnt in school did not interest us, but some of the things really did interest us. I can remember going to a, a um, teacher's meeting, my daughter's school, and the teacher said to me, the trouble with Mira is she only works at subjects she's interested in. <laughs> and you think, this is really the wrong world. <laughs> you say, actually, psychoanal psychoanalyst, analyst, sorry, we keep tripping over this, um, is a curiosity profession, yeah. not a helping profession? Not, like, not. Not, not. But, not but, so much. More. Yes, exactly. Explain that. Yeah, well, I, I think what I mean by that is that, of course, it is a helping profession in the sense that it's about alleviating people's suffering. But it's also about finding out from any given individual what it is for them to be helped. You see, I might think, I'm a very kind person, but I may never inquire what it would be to be kind to any given individual. In other words, what's kindness to them? So I think one of the things that I'm doing as a psychoanalyst is, if they want to, enabling people to be interested in what they're suffering from, to be curious about it. So the first impulse, if anybody suffers very badly, obviously, is to get rid of the pain. We all want to do that immediately. And sometimes that simply has to be done. If it doesn't have to be done, it seems to me there could be a pause and in that pause, somebody could become curious about what they're suffering from, why they might be suffering, and what the purpose of their suffering might be. So if you can get interested in your symptoms rather than simply want to evacuate them, I think it's more promising. It's sort of the antithesis of don't overthink it, of course. You should think and question yeah. and, and permanently you know, decide for yourself what it is that your feelings are representing. I mean, you talk also about this idea of giving up. It, it makes you think of take, taking something away, as you said. But if another thing that um, goes through all the essays is to always look at what you gain mm. from giving mm. up, from loss, from exclusion. Um, in particularly, I was fascinated by the fact that exclusion, if you turn that on its head as you do, is actually the way in which you gain an identity. Perhaps you could explain that. Well, um, we've presumably all had the experience, say adolescents or adults, of not being invited to the party. Now, you could obviously spend the rest of your life trying to get into the party, or you could use the experience in a very different way, which is that a, you could think, actually, do I want to go to this party? Because I may not even consider that. So is this actually an object of desire? Do I want to do this? Secondarily, what might I be able to do now that I can't do that? In other words, it creates a space. Now, this derives, I think, 
from the experience we've all had as children, which is that there's something about our parents' relationship that excludes us. I mean, they go to bed together tonight and, uh, every night and not with us. So whatever the parents do together that they don't do with the children, the children very often experience as a kind of exclusion. But we also know as children that we can have a lot of fun when our parents are preoccupied with each other or with something else. So it's much more to do with not assuming that if one's left out, the project is to get back in. If one's left out, the project might be to think, what do I actually want to be included in? What do I really want to do with my time? What do I really enjoy? As opposed to, obviously, as we've all been told growing up, we've been told so much about what we should enjoy that it's sometimes quite difficult to know what we do actually enjoy. And it's about who am I as opposed to the group that I'm not in. Yes, exactly. And also, who do I want to be? Yeah. And what's the life that I want to get for myself? I mean, again, this idea, we've been told what we should enjoy, uh, we've been told how we should interpret certain things and pushing back against that. Um, you say giving up, in other words, is usually thought of as a failure rather than as succeeding as something else. But I was struck by what you said next. It's worth wondering to whom we believe we have to justify ourselves when we are giving up or when we are determinedly not giving up. Who, who is that and how can we stop ourselves feeling that? I'm sure everyone can relate to this idea. They're sort of, we're not very kind to ourselves, are we? No, we're not. Um, I mean, it's a version of the question, and it seems to me this is potentially one of the freedoms of adulthood, which is, as an adult, you can choose who you want to be judged by. As a child, you can't. And in choosing who one wants to be judged by, one is trying to work out what kind of life it is that one wants for oneself. And um, given there is a great deal of, and it's clearly sought out, but a great deal of criticism around, and an awful lot of parenting at its worst is critical or restrictive in some way. It doesn't mean that good parenting is permissive, but bad parenting is over-restrictive. And so people very quickly are going to have a very cruel internal voice. And I mean, we all know this, that people, when they are critical of themselves, are often extremely cruel and unrelenting. And you'll notice that the critical voice in yourself has a very impoverished vocabulary. It only has about three or four ideas about you, or me. Uh, and this is worth noticing, because it's as though self-criticism is a way of not thinking about things, potentially. Now, it can be useful, it can be self-correcting, but when it takes off, as it does, I think, in most people, and most people at some point in their lives, it actually is like an attack on one's intelligence. It's as though one takes refuge in self-criticism as opposed to thinking about what one needs to think about. And of course, it's very gratifying punishing oneself. It doesn't feel like that, but I think it is. When you say we just have three words, I suppose that feeds into another theme of the book, which is to appreciate, embrace language in all of this. So if, if, when we think of our ability to self-criticize so quickly, perhaps we could help ourselves, what, by encouraging more words to come into that vocabulary and, and sort of assessing the, not stupidity wasn't the word you used, but the sort of naivety or the narrowness of the language we use to describe ourselves. Yes, I mean, I think the, that it's likely that the larger your vocabulary is, the larger your world is. And it seems to me one needs resources of redescription, which is why conversation is, is the best thing going. Should be the only game in town, really. 
because in conversation, things get elaborated between people. And that seems to me is where the action is, really. You talk about redescription a lot. I mean, uh, in, in, in many of the different essays that people can can read, but loss, you say, could be redescribed as inspiration, and you challenge the way that we think about loss and, and mourning. Perhaps you could uh, explain that a bit. You have to read the essay, but <laughs> but um, I think you have the, to read all the, the the simple idea in that short essay is this: that it's as though we've all accepted that. Our lives are all about loss, either anticipating loss or managing it when it occurs. And we are, I think, often encouraged to believe that mourning may be the most profound thing we ever do. Now, I don't want to suggest one moment that people don't feel loss, but the vocabulary of loss can uh, infiltrate every area of one's life. For example, one could think that aging is the loss of youth. Well, if it isn't the loss of youth, it may be simply change. It may be simply development. But if it's, if it's the loss of youth, then obviously, as I get older, I'm going to be mourning my youth. You could think, well, that's a total waste of time. Why bother to do that? Because loss, of course, is about the past. It's all about the past. And I think one of the things that I'm interested in, really, is people's relationship to the future. In other words, what kind of future are you trying to make by the way you use your past? And if one gets caught up with or addicted to loss and mourning, it's very easily a way of not um, living in the future. I'm going to give you an example. There's a story that um, Sarge tells about a young married couple. Every morning they come down to breakfast and they have breakfast together and then the husband goes off to work and the woman sits by the window all day crying. And then when he comes back, she perks up. And Sarge says, well, the obvious interpretation of this is she's suffering from a terrible separation anxiety. But actually, when her husband leaves in the morning, she's free. She can do whatever she wants. So actually, she's frightened of her freedom. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I to sort of take a moment to just <laughs> take it in and, and consider it. I mean, you say um, giving up. Again, back to obviously the sort of unifying theme of the essays is something that should be taught in schools at mm. one point. I mean, what would that look like? Well, what it would look like would be the freedom not to continue with something when actually one no longer wants to do it, really. <laughs> so that obviously we're taught that persistence is a great virtue. Well, sometimes it is. I mean, clearly, there's lots of things you can't learn if you don't persist. But also, a lot of time is wasted persisting in something one doesn't want to do. So if one was to learn giving up, it would, be, it would be something to do with learning about A, where in one's life it might be useful, and what one's fears might be about giving up. Because tyrants are people who don't give up. I mean, Trump doesn't give up. <laughs> Hitler didn't give up. Um, tragic heroes don't give up. And not giving up means not being able to revise your project, not being able to have a second thought. And so I think people should be, instead of it being connoted as a failure, we shouldn't be the kind of people who give up. It should be redescribed as there are some, some things one should give up. 
and some people one should give up on. Do you think it's a, a, a cultural thing? I mean, do you think it's a British thing? A sort of, you know, we, we talk about stiff upper lip, but when I hear you describing not being able to give up or, you know, forcibly going along a path despite perhaps there being a better option, not looking back, is, is, that, is that a cultural, a sort of a British thing? All, well, I don't know if it's British, but all these things must be cultural ideals. That to grow up in a cultural world is to be given a lot of pictures of the kind of man or woman one should be. And that means give, being given a whole vocabulary of values, of ideals. Uh, you must never give up. You really need to see this through. Well, I might actually give up learning to play the piano because A, I don't enjoy it, and B, I can't do it. But I could devote an awful lot of time trying to do it. So I think it would be something about um, not assuming that giving something or somebody up is in and of itself a failure. Yeah. You mentioned tragic heroes, and you do write about them quite a lot. Um, why are they so instructive in this? Tragic heroes, exactly, Trump, you said Hitler, and tragic heroes are the example of not giving up. Well, they're people who believe and need to be right. And they're people who don't believe there are other people in the world. So they don't want conversation, they want accomplices. They want people to collude with them or agree with them or flatter their preferred image of themselves. Whereas I think a, a, a better life is one in which not that people are harshly critical of each other, but people can talk about each other, to each other, in ways that are useful and enable you actually to think about what you might want to do and be. So the, the trouble with tragic heroes is they're undeflectable. They are absolutely determined that they know the truth and they're right. And we know tragedies end in tragedy. That's what they are. Um, if, if we move on to, uh, well, we're touching obviously upon themes that weave throughout all of the essays, but you do write um, in your essay on dead or alive or finding aliveness. And you sort of question what this idea of aliveness or a feeling of being alive actually is and, and what questioning that or trying to figure that out brings to our lives or to psychoanalysis. What, what does it? Why, why should we always question and think upon it? Otherwise, you say, the sort of enemy of that or the antithesis of that is falling into habit and pattern and perhaps routine. Well, you could think, obviously, everybody in this room is alive. We're alive, we're talking to each other. Uh, but it may be worth wondering what makes one feel alive. And also, it may be worth noticing the ways one has of deadening oneself and indeed of deadening other people. And so I think that that's in a way what that essay is about. There's a, uh, a reference in the, that essay to Henry James's novel, The Wings of the Dove. That novel is a story of a uh, not very old, very rich young American woman who is dying. And she has various conversations in which she says to her friends, she's worried that she may not have lived and this is not a mystery, but it's very poignant and powerful. The idea that one might have had a life and not have lived. And therefore, it seems to be worth considering what it would be like to feel that one had lived, looking back. But, but primarily, being able to notice what actually is genuinely enlivening to you. Because there may be lots of things you like that are genuinely deadening. Now, of course, you can choose to be deadened. As long as you have to be alive. But it may be worth wondering and noticing. That's all. 
So I think it's something to do with who are the people who make one feel more alive and who are the people who make one feel actually rather depleted or rather depressed or dispirited. And it matters. But in, in terms of deadening ourselves, do you, do you think that habit and routine and... Because people, people cling to those. I, th I think many people cling to those. Do, do they... You say uh, habit is a form of failure. I think that could be a quote from someone. Is that right or, or can No, it's, it's not right as an absolute general statement because clearly habits make things possible. I mean, rules are habits. You can't play football if you don't know the rules. So you have to habituate yourself to the rules. But I think we're all also aware of when we recruit habits to deaden ourselves, when we want to feel safe rather than excited. And we can feel so safe that we feel actually dead. And that might be what somebody wants, to anesthetize themselves. But I think it's worth wondering what, f what, it, what one feels are the habits that get on the life one wants? And what are the habits that are effectively a ways of evading that? So is the answer, and there are no straightforward answers, it's obviously curiosity and different for everybody, but is your uh, advice that you question your habits and you question your routines and also shake them up, put spontaneity as one of the things you talk about into your life? Well, yeah, in a way, I mean, I th this is only for people who like the idea of it, if you see what I mean. It's, I don't want to persuade anybody to do this, because yeah. I can't, can't see the point of that. Yeah. But if somebody was curious about their habits and what they were using their habits to do to themselves, inquire, talk about it, think about it. Because it would seem to me, you can't live without habits. Because there's repetition is fundamental to a life. But some habits are more deadening than others. And if you want to feel alive, you need to do something about that. Yeah. So uh, inquiry, questioning, is where you come back to at almost the end of, of, of every essay. The importance is to question it. Um, and you, you talk about wanting. You talk a lot about um, Freud in, in that essay and say that people will criticise his ideas of, of wanting, but that the important thing is how we go about wanting. That's his legacy, or the fluidity and the ingeniousness of our wanting. So what, what is it that you're trying to say there that's, that we should think more about what it is to want? Well, what it I, says I, about ourselves. Yes, thoughts. I mean, let me put this the other way around just for a moment. Let's say this is crude and it is not true. But let's say Freud says everything's really sexual. Now, you could think, there it is, a fact of life. Or you could think, if we decide to believe that about ourselves, what kind of life does it get us? Does it get us the kind of life we want? So whenever we, we're being told about so-called human nature, we're being told by somebody who needs to believe this, this is who we really are. Well, I think it might be useful to think there's nothing that we really are that these are all chosen fictions and stories and accounts. There's an American philosopher called Richard Rorty who said, there's nothing deep inside us that we haven't put there ourselves. And what that means is that it isn't obviously completely true any more than anything is, but the, the truth in it is that we have made in words accounts of who we take ourselves to really be, or what we take to human nature <clears throat> really is. And it would seem to me those, it's useful to provide these accounts, but they need to be discussable, as opposed to feeling we have to simply submit to them. As, as you said when I asked you about loss, I think, clearly, I think their interest will have been piqued listening to you to go and read the full essays. We're just 
taking bits out and diving into them. And you write, again, I, I was sort of hugely interested in your writing on censorship. Again, pushing back at this idea of censorship and how it can be freeing in its own way. Mm. Because I would think of censorship as the opposite yeah. of freeing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, me too. But, but the assumption would be that the censor is always a very bad, repressive, punishing person. Now, that's often true. But it's also true that there's no life without a category of the unacceptable. So we're always going to be censoring ourselves. Clearly, growing up is learning to censor oneself, learning to defer gratification, learning to take other people into account, and so on. So the question isn't how do we get around the censorship. The question is how do we get the right kind of censor with whom we can have the best kind of conversation. So a good censor will help us make our wants known to other people in a way that they can listen to them and enjoy them. A bad censor will make us present our wants as a forms of bullying or intimidation. So it's all about, initially, a relationship to oneself. The part of oneself that wants things and the part of oneself that believes for all sorts of reasons either one shouldn't want them or one can't want them, or one's got to find a better way of wanting them. Because, you know, it's fundamental to psychoanalysis that wanting is always a conflict. It's never straightforward for anybody. I'm not saying this is true, but this is what psychoanalysis believes. Just um, to finish off, what is it about, just in terms of form rather than content, you gain from essays, from putting your thoughts in yeah. essays rather than a, a sort of... It's, it's very hard to tell that, only because, you know, one writes the books one writes because the books one's read, really. And I think what happens is that by sort of osmosis or whatever, there were certain kind of writers I liked growing up and so on. Um, what I do like about essays is that they're not propaganda. Um, you can meander, you can wander, you can change the subject, you can move around. They're not they're not in and of themselves forms of intimidation or bullying, ideally. They're, you know, it's, the French word essay is to try. You try something out. And in that sense, an essay is an experiment, I think, which would seem to be what a conversation should be and what a relationship should be. They're experiments in living. But what I like about essays is they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're short, and you can think in them. Well, I mean, that is so interesting to hear you say that because you very much get the impression reading your essays that you are uh, working things out, that you are thinking through things as you go. And I suppose that's a way of bringing us with you and making it into a conversation with us as you might have with a, with a patient. Yes, that's what I would hope um, because certainly they're completely unrehearsed. I don't have 10 ideas and then write an essay. Um, one sentence leads to another. Um, and so, and it, for me, it is a way of thinking, as you've said. Uh, ideally, or if it works, I think, there will be some people who are intrigued and interested and find this enjoyable, and they'll want to read it. But it's only for the people who, likes it, who like it. Well, I always say at the end of interviews, sadly, that's all we've got time for, but I feel it very deeply now because I could certainly sit and talk to you for at least another hour. Um, thank you all very much. As I said, the uh, book on giving up is outside um, and Adam will be signing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode starred Adam Phillips and was presented by Hannah McInnes. 
The show is produced by me and Nicole Wong, and our editor is John Doughty. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>